Life Midtown. If you guys feel comfortable with me, if you could stand up so we can worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm so excited to be here with all of you on the first day of football season. So if you guys don't mind singing with me, let's worship our King. Who am I that the highest king would welcome I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free. Oh, it's free indeed. I'm a child.
Yes, friends, we have been known as children of God. It's not by anything that we have done on our own, but it's all because of Jesus Christ. And that's a good just thing to remember, that we're not here by our own volition necessarily. It's not because we decided we wanted to come to church that we came to church. Heck, half the people here didn't want to come to church. But someone brought you, and we're glad that they did. Truthfully, yes, you said yes to coming to church, but it's the Holy Spirit that's been at work in your life. You couldn't see it. You might not have been able to sense it, but it is the Lord that has work. And so that's something that we can celebrate, God. Can we just lift up, again, a clap offering to the Lord and just thank Him for the good work that He's doing in our life, whether seen or not seen. All right, friends, I got some good news. I got a new song to introduce to you here today. It is a New Life Worship original that we're singing at different congregations. So I want to teach it to you, the chorus part, so that way you're a little familiar. So is that okay if we do that? Great. It goes like this. He is always with us, faithful and true in our weakness. He is bringing us through a highway through the valley, a promise through the pain.
Save us from our failures. Jesus, that is who you are. You are the Savior. We worship you. Friends, it's in moments like this that the Spirit of God begins to form us and shape us into what he designs and what he sees fit for our life. Form us and shape us after the image of Jesus Christ. So can we put our attentions towards the screen? Can we pray out the Psalms together? As an act of faith, let us pray Psalm 56, starting at verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I might walk before God in the light of life. Let us pray as we continue to, to sing songs. Father God, thank you that you are our trust. You, you are our source of life. Everything that we desire is found in you, Lord God. Lord, I pray that every burden that we've carried as we've walked into this building would be released. We would put it upon the cross. And Jesus, you would take that burden. and You would encourage us to walk, to walk with our own cross, to carry our cross. As we carry the cross, we know we go to a crucifixion, but there is resurrection and ascension on the other side. So Jesus, take our cares and our concerns, because nothing could ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing could ever separate us. We abide in you this morning. In your holy name, Lord Jesus, we pray and say, amen.
hearts this morning. Guys, I feel there's something unique on this service. I feel like there's something the Lord has specifically for some of you in this place. You know, first service, I asked for those who had been experiencing just an outpouring of the faithfulness of God in their life over the past few weeks or months or year to raise their hands. And this place, you guys, there were so many hands that were raised, which is such a testimony in and of itself. And I know if I were to ask the same thing in this service, a bunch of you would be able to raise your hands too. But I'm feeling something a little different. I'm feeling Luke chapter 8. It's verse four, starting at verse 43, but just a little bit before that verse starts, it says, As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, desperate for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not be unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And guys, I feel like there is an atmosphere of faith in this place this morning. I feel like there's, there's a little bit of a stirring in the spirit this morning that the Lord wants to touch some people in some profound ways. Some of you guys, some recent things have come against you and you are desperate to see God move in your midst, whether that be in your body or in your mind or in your emotions or in your family or in relationships or jobs or finances. And then there's some of you guys who've been holding out for years. Like this woman, 12 years of desperation and you're like, I am desperate. Are you desperate in this place? Are we desperate for an outpouring of the Lord? Are we desperate to see the presence of God being manifested in this place? Not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the brothers and sisters around us and for the benefit of the community around us. The Lord is in this place this morning. So I'm going to ask a very bold thing. And usually, we don't usually do this because it could take a little bit of time. We're going to try to work with this here. But I really sense that just like this lady pressed through the crowd, just like this lady, as a step of faith, stepped out of her comfort, stepped out of what felt at ease and put herself in a position where, God, you have to make me whole. God, you have to move. So I'm going to ask that if anyone's in that place of desperation today, no matter what the situation is, would you be so bold as to come forward? I felt, I just saw in my head, I saw people coming forward to the altar and the Lord moving because you put yourself in a place of such radical faith and obedience. Now, those of you who you feel like God has been moving in great ways in your life, I'm going to ask you to come and minister. If you would come to the front and minister over these people, we're going to do some body ministry here. Altar workers, if you wouldn't mind coming up and helping to pray as well. Let's just open our hands up as a sign of surrender, as a sign of utter dependence on God. Oh, Father, have mercy on us. Oh, Father, have mercy on us. If you don't come through, we don't know what we'll do, God. We need you in this place. We declare we are not enough in this place. This world is not enough. The doctors are not enough. That The counselors are good, but they're not quite enough. Lord, this job is we're thankful for, but it's not quite enough. 
Lord, we continue to come against these roadblocks over and over and over again. God, I pray this morning that you would come and that you would touch your sons and you would touch your daughters and that you would bring breakthrough into their life today. Lord, maybe some things will be totally turned around today and maybe some things this begins the process of redemption. This begins the process of the turnaround. But Lord, I ask that you would see your sons and daughters this morning. I ask that you would have mercy on them. I ask that as they humble themselves and put their hands out to reach the the hem of your garment, that Lord, power would go through you into their lives, into their situations. Lord, those who need healing, would you restore their bodies? Lord, those who need mental and emotional restoration, would you restore them, God? Those who need a breakthrough in their finances, God, would you make a way where there seems to be no way? Lord, those who are fighting for their marriages, those who are fighting for their children, those who are fighting for relationships, God, we ask that the restore, that the God of reconciliation would come in and bring reconciliation to families, bring reconciliation into relationships in the name of Jesus. Lord, we call upon you, not by our might, not by our power, but by the power of God that lives inside of us. We call upon you. We draw on your goodness and your might this morning. Meet us right where we're at, we pray. All glory and all honor go to you in Jesus' name. Come on, let's give a praise to him. You are so faithful and you are so good. And God, I just pray for strength for every single person who is up here. Give them strength to keep hoping, to keep standing. The word says when we've done all to do, we stand. Give them strength to continue standing until they see your faithfulness and your goodness and your breakthrough in the land of the living. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you for letting us rally around you. Thank you for letting us be the body of Christ. Guys, this is when we're at our best right here. When we are loving and standing with one another. And we will continue to stand with you. We're going to now transition into our time of giving. There are four ways to give. We're going to put those ways on the screen. If this is your home church, we just ask that if you give online that you would just mark New Life Midtown. And we're going to now, we're going to actually forego the giving liturgy this morning. And we're going to go straight to blessing our children and to praying the Lord's Prayer together. This is the per- kiddos, this is the perfect prayer that Jesus gave us. And when you don't know what to pray, when you don't know what to say, Jesus gave us words. And so that's why we speak this over you every Sunday so that it gets deep, deep into your heart and takes root so that you always, always have words for Jesus. So let's say this together, family. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. All right, kiddos, we bless you to go to your class and to learn about all things about who the Lord is. Family, welcome. If this is your first time to New Life Midtown, we are so, so grateful that you're here. We're going to take one minute and kind of introduce ourselves to someone next to us. And then we've got Jonathan who will bring the word. Midtown. I'm Rachel Brown. I oversee the kids ministry here at New Life Midtown and I've got just a couple of announcements for us. First of all, we are partnering with Cause I Love You for citywide worship this Friday night. It's going to be at Discovery Church right down the street from us and it's an awesome opportunity for us to come together as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ from all different churches all across the city to worship the Lord and to engage in the work that he has for us here in our city. Another event we have coming up is New Life Next. This is our event for guests. So if you're new or new-ish to the Midtown community, we would love to see you there. New Life Next is great because you can get to know the staff, learn more about the community here at Midtown, and find ways to get connected. Save your spot. You can sign up online today. That's all that we have for today. We look forward to seeing you at all of these events. Good morning, Midtown. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, my son, I had buckled him into the seat on our way here this morning, and you know, I, I try and be focused, and my kid's primary job on Sunday mornings is to ensure that does not happen. And uh, of course, so um, I buckle my three-year-old and my five-year-old into the back seat, and I get in, and I turn the car on, and he hands a book that actually dropped it in my lap from over the seat, and I'm like, Lucas, and he goes, Dad, read me this book, and I says, well, son, we're, we're getting in the car to drive. I can't read and drive. I know you think I'm multi-talented, but I, I cannot do that. And he goes, oh, well, where are we going again? I said, well, we're going to church. It's Sunday morning. And he goes, oh, yeah, the customers are coming, right? <laughs> I kid you not. First of all, I didn't know he knew the word customers. Uh, but second of all, we strive to be a kind of people who do not treat you that way. This is the Lord's house. 
I know that's funny, and, it, and it, I chuckled, and I needed it this morning because I was like, this, I was really focused. But truly, what we want for this people, this house, is to be the kind of people who are just extending the welcome of God one to another, back around. Like, you are not clients, you're not customers, you're not high church parishioners. You are the people of God. And here at Midtown, that's who we want to be, is the people of God learning to love and care for one another. So I hope that that is happening. If you are new, my name is Jonathan, and I just want to extend that welcome and say, welcome to the house of the Lord. Hopefully you have already sensed the Spirit and the work of the Spirit here. But if not, maybe God has a word for you at the table or perhaps even in this message. Now before we jump in, two quick announcements. The same two I gave you last week, they were not in the videos. That's okay. This week, both table groups and men's retreat registrations are closing, okay? So if you are, by nature, a procrastinator, no shame, you still have a few more days, all right? Uh, Most groups, table groups, are meeting for their second time this week, and after this week, we will close the groups. And then men's retreat, we have to send in hard numbers on Thursday, so if you've been meaning to sign up for either one, please go ahead and do so. All right, that concludes the announcements. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. If I say nothing else today, the gospel has been preached. So I feel good already. Um, Today, I have the demanding task of preaching the life of King David in one message. And you would think that I would learn after last week trying to do that with Saul. David is twice as difficult And uh, there are so many things that we could talk about. We could talk about the brilliance of David as a leader. We could talk about David, the overcomer, the one who is victorious in circumstances where it seems like all the cards are stacked against him. But I want to talk to you, I think the word for us today is to try and discern what was it about David that caused God to put his hand on him and say, I'm after someone whose heart is after me. What made David the man after God's own heart? And the scripture is, is telling us a story. So just as a, as a way of priming the pump, when we're reading these ancient texts, we have to resist the urge to read them, A, as plain history, as if there even is such a thing as objective plain history. All history is told from a particular perspective. And all history is making choices of what to include and what to leave out. And so everything that we read in the text, we have to remember there were other things that happened, but we know about these things because this is what the author, and we believe as Christians, that the text is inspired, so we believe this is what the author And God wanted us to read in these texts. And they're not simple. There's a lot of stuff that we're going to read about today that if you're thinking about David, like Winston Churchill, you're going to go, what in the world? But David was a primitive leader on the edge of the bronze into the Iron Age. Think of him more like a tribal warrior who also happened to be a brilliant poet and a wonderful musician a great politician, a warrior. David is all of these things, but he is all of these things a thousand years before Jesus comes on the scene. 
And he doesn't have a New Testament to read, to know about these things like grace and forgiveness. That all of the things that we see in the life of David that are marks of the new covenant, that are revealed also in the life of Jesus, came to David either by way of revelation directly from the heart of God, or by way of revelation through the Torah. In other words, God is, or David is seeing these things in the heart of God through the first five books of the Old Testament. And we do well to read with these things in mind, because if we just read with our 21st century Western American lenses, we're going to miss all kinds of th- stuff, and we're also going to be projecting lots of stuff into the text. So what is it about David that made him a man after God's own heart? Well, let's look at a few things it wasn't, shall we? His supreme, superior morality. (laughs) If you read David's story, you know that David made perhaps as many mistakes as any other biblical figure that we would consider to be a hero. He made far more mistakes than Saul, his predecessor. And at the end of this, we see that David ends up with more blood on his hands, and it's that reason that he can't build God a temple. That David made mistake after mistake, and it was actually the fact that he was such a good warrior that got him into conflict with Saul to begin with. You remember the saying, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. So not only did David make Tons of mistakes, but there are multiple parts throughout David's story where he actually takes the killing and the violence above and beyond what God asks, where we saw last week in the story of Saul that there were a few times that Saul actually withheld, where David doesn't do that. And David goes all the way and then some. So I don't think it was his superior morality that makes David a man after God's own heart. What about his motives? Maybe it was just the purity of his heart that just so often maybe became misguided, but maybe his motives. Well, here's an interesting thing. When we look at the story of Saul, which we did last week, we see that Saul actually is anointed and seems to be resistant of receiving the kingship. Remember that moment when his coronation moment and Samuel is about to knight him king and Saul's missing, Saul's hiding in the supply room, And we see something of the opposite in David's story. So the story about David we're probably all most familiar with is the story of David and Goliath, right? You probably know the story even if you weren't raised in church and didn't go to Sunday school. There are these details early on in the story of David and Goliath that are perplexing to say the least. So David comes with food for his brothers down to the battlefield and the Philistine army and the Israelite army are are lined up against one another. And as they would do as a way of just sparing a little bit of bloodshed in those days, is sometimes they would elect, both armies would elect to have their best warrior fight one-on-one. And then whoever won the one-on-one battle actually wins the army and the other would retreat and the winners would go and take the spoils. So Goliath is this huge man among the Philistines. This part of the story I'm kind of assuming we know. I'm skipping lots of details. And David comes on the scene while Goliath is giving this appeal for someone from the Israelite army to come and fight him. 
And David asks this question multiple times to multiple people. What will be done for the man who kills that man? Were David's motives pure? Well, I guess none of us can really see to the heart of David. But remember what I said about the author and the text and what's included wanting to be known for some kind of reason. So then David's oldest brother Eliab comes up to him while David is asking someone else this question. And Eliab rebukes him and says, David, I know what's in your heart. There's a little bit of history there, it seems, right? Brotherly history. But these clues are leading us to believe Maybe David's motives right from the beginning were a little more mixed than we've assumed. What about because David was a great family man? Maybe that's why. Maybe he didn't have superior morality and maybe his motives were a little bit mixed. David the family man. I can hardly say it without laughing. Because if you know anything about David's story, is right from the beginning he starts making mistakes that trail generations beyond him. That he has a son who rapes a daughter, a son who kills another son, a son that killed the other son, then comes for him and dies along the way. Like David's family was a truly royal mess. Do you see what I did right there? You like that? David's family is a royal mess. And between the stories of Saul to the end of David's life, when King Solomon takes over, The one wholesome, faithful, true character is Jonathan. And I know I'm biased, but I promise if you read the story, you'll agree with me. It's Jonathan. And whose son is he? He's King Saul's son. So if anybody, and look, King Saul was not a great father at all, by the way. Neither, none of us men should model our parenting after either one of these kings of Israel, okay? But if we had to choose one of them to be a better father, we would have to choose Saul. Fathering was perhaps David's greatest weakness, as we will see today. So what is it about David that God sees in him and calls him a man after his own heart? Well, let's look at just a couple of verses from 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is the anointing moment. So when they arrived... Samuel saw Eliab. Eliab is the oldest of David's siblings and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Now, what might that be a throwback to? Saul's anointing moment where Samuel tells us in that moment that Saul is handsome and a foot or a head taller than all the other men in Israel. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, there is this interesting detail in the story, once again, looking at the contrast between Saul and David's stories, where it says that when Saul was anointed king, what happened? The Spirit came on him and gave him a new heart. But what happens this time? God was looking for someone who already had something of his own heart. Here's how we'll say it. God gave a new heart to Saul, but this time God is looking for someone who already possesses something of his own heart. 
And I do think that this is multifaceted, that there's not like one little hidden gem that we're going to find that nobody else who's ever preached these passages has ever found today. But I do think that there are glimpses in three stories regarding David's life. And most of them also come on the back end of failure, I will say. That on the back end of failure, we actually see something of David's heart that I think is what God saw before David was ever crowned king. First story is going to come from 2 Samuel chapter 12, but this is a response to what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So this is the famous story of David and Bathsheba. Most of us who were raised in church will know the story begins with, and in the time when the kings went off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. So many preachers will preach it this way, and I don't think it's wrong, it's just not where we're going today, that David wasn't where he was supposed to be, and that's when he fell into temptation. Largely true, I think. So David falls into temptation as he's twiddling his thumbs, walking around the heights of his palace at night, and he sees this woman, this beautiful woman, bathing, and he sends his servants to summon her back to the palace. And when she comes back to the palace, of course, what does she have to do? It's the king of Israel. So David sleeps with her. David finds out a couple of weeks later that she is pregnant, and David has this oh-snap moment, right? where he realizes, okay, it wasn't just a one-night fun thing, but now there's real repercussions. She's pregnant. We're going to have to figure this out, or else the whole nation is going to know what I've done. So David summons her husband back from war, one of his mighty men. He comes back in. David is hoping she will sleep with her husband, and then the timing will work out just about right. So when the baby's born, ta-da, remember that one time, Uriah, you came back from war and you had that glorious night? The only problem is that Uriah doesn't sleep with his wife that night because he has so much honor and character that he sleeps at the foot of the doorstep of the king Guarding the king. He says, if I can't be with my men out there on the battlefield, there's no way I will indulge in this tonight. I will sleep and guard your door, O king. So David's like, oh my word, this plan is not working. So what does David do? Does he repent? Does he turn around? Does he confess? No, he doesn't. He continues to take it even further. And he sends Uriah back out and tells Joab, put him on the front lines certainly he'll be killed because everyone on the front lines gets killed in war. So he's basically a pawn now. So this is one of David's men. He's stolen his wife. He's now killed the man. And when he finds out that Uriah is actually dead, he brings his wife Bathsheba back into the palace. I do think that there is a warning here for us. And I think this warning is something like when you're used to getting what you want, it's easy to justify using any means necessary. I don't think David went out that night and was looking for someone to take because he didn't have enough wives or enough concubines. I think what happened with David is his heart deceived him in a moment. And what did he do? He sent his servants the same thing that David did hundreds of times every day. And his servant can't rebel. His servant can't say no. He'll have his head. Be careful when you are in positions of authority and power. I'm speaking specifically now to those of you who are business owners, to those of you who are managers, and you're used to hearing yes. Or 
You're used to hearing what you want. You're used to getting your way. I don't think David went out and was like, oh, I don't have enough wives, right? So I'm going to go find the most beautiful woman in the land. And then when he finds out that she's actually the wife of one of his mighty men, he still doesn't change his mind because power has touched something deep inside of David. So here's what happens. We'll pick up the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So David has taken Bathsheba into his house, and here's what happens. Verse 1, the Lord sends Nathan. Nathan is a prophet to David. And when he came to him, he said, David, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal. Instead, he took that single ewe lamb who belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord says, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise, next verse, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And then, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I want to take a moment and pray and say, Lord, I pray that you would speak through these passages today. These ancient stories from some 3,000 years ago Lord, you are still breathing on them, and you're breathing on them to reveal to us who you are, and you are also breathing on them to show us who we are. And I pray today that we would see through the holy reflection of your word where we need to repent, and where we need to be tender, and where we need to turn back to you. And I also pray that we would, in those moments, see you rightly for who you are. And I ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God's people said... Amen. So we have Nathan come to David and tell him this little anecdote, probably because he knows if I come out and say directly to David what he had done, David very well could have killed Nathan easily, without question. And nobody would have ever heard Nathan. Somewhere along the line, there would have been another prophet raised up, and Nathan would have been history. So Nathan was wise. And Nathan comes and tells David, and what is David's response before he realizes it's him? The man must die for what he has done. So even there, we see something of a sense of true justice deep down in David's heart. There, somewhere in that heart, there is true north that is connected to the justice of God. 
And David, when he finds out it is him, he's already made the judgment against this quote-unquote man, and he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, there was a couple of stories last week where we saw Saul confess at the end, but I made the point Saul confessed but never made it all the way fully to repentance. So how do we know that David is actually repenting, not just saying, okay, Nathan, you got me? Well, there is this psalm that you and I still read today. We even sing it in certain songs. Put these verses up. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now these verses are incredibly powerful. Many of us in the room have prayed them dozens, maybe even hundreds of times over the course of our lifetime. But there's a difference between David writing this in the privacy of his own journal and what we see before verse 1 in Psalm chapter 51. You see what it says there? For the director of music. David wrote this psalm, this psalm of repentance, and he walks into the tabernacle one day and he hands it to Seth, the music director, and he says, Seth, I know I haven't written a lot of songs recently. I used to be a good songwriter. I'm a has-been, but I've got this song now that I think, I think it could be worth singing. And so he hands it over to the music director, and he can see the music director's face is distraught. And he goes, David, we, we can't sing this publicly. You want us to sing this publicly in worship? And David says, I don't want you to. We have to. David, for David, it wasn't enough to just cry out to God in the privacy of his own journal or the privacy of his own prayer closet. But David's repentance, we can tell it's real because David knew his sin had touched the whole nation and David let his repentance touch the whole nation. David didn't just say, God, in the privacy of my own home, I'm sorry. But he said, we've all got to sing about it. And I think there's two reasons he made it public. One, David knew that if he was capable of those things, he had to warn the people. It doesn't matter if you're called, anointed, if you even have something of God's own heart inside of you, you are still capable of these kinds of things. And let that be a warning to all of us today, that there is no place that we can get to with God where we are completely insulated from the temptation of sin. But David also knew something else. He had such a conviction in the character of God that he wanted the people to know, though I have sinned, Israel, wherever you are, when I'm dead and gone, long from now, in exile, when you've rebelled against God, I want you to know that the God that we serve is a God you can throw yourself on his feet and ask for mercy and forgiveness and compassion and grace and cleansing. Guys, think about how confident we see David in this moment as we read Psalm 51. He knows the heart of God. He knows the character of God. So much so that he puts pen to paper and brings it into the tabernacle. And 3,000 years later, we're still reading these verses. David's repentance and public remorse reveal that deep within him, there is a humility 
in touch with the heart of God. The second story comes from 2 Samuel chapter 15. And this story is complicated as well. So David, perhaps actually his greatest sin was a sin of omission, a sin where he did nothing. So when we pray the prayer of confession, we will pray, forgive us for what we have done and left undone. And what we see in Matthew 25 when Jesus divides the sheep from the goats is that the sheep, those who are going to be with Jesus, are those who were responsible in the way that they were supposed to be for caring for the sick, for visiting the imprisoned, for clothing the naked, and so on. And when he separates the goats, it wasn't that they did something wrong so much as they didn't take responsibility when they had been empowered to do so. So David, in this story, one of his sons, I mentioned this just a moment ago, lusted after his half-sister, so much so that he connives a plan and he goes and he rapes his half-sister. And her full brother's name was Absalom. And Absalom appeals to David to do something about it, and David turns his head the other way. And David does nothing, and he's got incest in his own family, and he refuses to deal with it. And so what this does is over the course of two years, Absalom goes and kills his half-brother Amnon for doing that. But that didn't absolve the vengeance and the poison and the bitterness in his heart. Now he's angry at his father. He's still angry at his father and justified. His father should have done something, not only just as a father, but also as king. And David turns his head and does nothing. So Absalom, over the course of four years, allows this to fester and grow within him. And finally, he's raised up an army and convinced more people in the kingdom of Israel that he should be king than those who are loyal to David. And so we get this story here in 2 Samuel chapter 15. We'll start in verse 13. So David is about to leave. A messenger comes and tells David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Verse 15, the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord, Lord the king chooses. Skip ahead to verse 23. So now they have left the city and they're making their way out into the countryside. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok, who was the priest, was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. This is an astounding moment. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaaz with you and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. Next verse. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. 
His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went. The first thing David does right that we should note is David refuses to use the Ark of the Covenant as a weapon against his enemy. David has enough, he's in touch with God enough to recognize that it is not my place to use God's presence as a tool to wield off my enemy and make happen what I think is best for my people. God, you decide. David says, I will leave and I will send the ark back in because the ark belongs in the city. It doesn't just belong with me as king, but the city of Jerusalem is the holy city. And I want the ark back there. Guys, do you realize how wild this is? Knowing that his enemy is heading into Jerusalem. He sends the ark back to be with his son. And he refuses to take his own fate into his hands. As a king, when as we just read a moment ago, David is used to getting whatever he wants. Doing whatever he wants. Using his power to make decisions all day long. Most of the time, probably considering if it's best for him or not. But in this moment... David recognizes, I can't use God's presence as a weapon. I refuse to do that. So he sends the ark back in. But then there is that detail about David going up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went with his head covered and his feet bare. Now that's not much like a king, is it? A king to be barefoot, probably leaving behind all of the wealth in the palace, weeping over the state of his own mess, but probably more importantly, certainly more importantly, over the state of the people and the nation of Israel and Jerusalem, recognizing that his job as king is to cover and to to steward this kingdom, and he realizes I haven't done it well, and the son who's about to take my place, he's not ready to do it either. He's so eaten up with bitterness. But do you realize that in the Gospels, Of all the stories of Jesus that allude back to David, this is the story that's picked up in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John to reveal the heart of Jesus that was previously visible in David a thousand years before. That Jesus coming into Jerusalem, weeping over the city, right? We read that in the book of Luke. And in the book of John, There are a lot of stories in the other Gospels that are missing from John, but it specifically says that after Jesus was praying, he crossed the Kidron Valley, and he went knowing he was going to be crucified shortly thereafter. And on his way to be crucified, he's betrayed by one of his 12 disciples, he's disowned by Peter, and he's interrogated by Pilate. You know what happens to David right after this moment where we stopped reading? David is met by a deceiver. And when David finds out he is deceived, he lets it go. And then one of Saul's ancestors is throwing large stones at David and his party. And most of the time, you know what a king would do? Snap fingers, head off. What does David do? He says, he's got a point. Look at the way I've treated Saul's family. Look at the way I've treated my own family. Maybe this is indeed God's judgment coming against me. Let him throw the stones and maybe it will turn my own heart. Do you know how rare that is for someone with that amount of power and authority to be in touch with the depths of their heart? Even if it is just for a moment. 
But David has enough self-awareness in that moment. And he shows us meekness and restraint as he leaves Jerusalem and his own fate to the hands of God. Listen, friends, there are times when you and I will be put in positions where our rights are to do something on our own behalf. And there are times when God will ask you and call you to lay down those rights and let him fight your battle for you. And it's not always easy to know when those times are, which is why it's crucial to have a heart that is tender toward God. Lord, I'm king. When Saul was king, I refused to kill him, and now look what my son's doing to me. But David doesn't do that. David goes first, and David says, I'm not going to use your presence. I'm not even going to tell this man to stop throwing rocks. I'm not taking my own judgment into my own hands. I'm allowing it to be yours alone. And look at these verses from 1 Peter chapter 2, these verses about Jesus on the cross. And when they hurled their insults at him, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Was Jesus justified against their threats? Of course, Jesus says, I could have called down 10,000 angels, but he doesn't. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, his father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you, people of Israel, have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus, if anyone in history, would have been justified to speak out on his own behalf, to make his own defense, to come off that cross, and to call down thousands of angels in that moment. But what does Jesus actually say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And we see that in a glimpse a thousand years before Jesus in the life of David. There is this moment where he is so in touch with his own heart and the heart of God that is buried deep within his own heart where David recognizes this is not the moment. I entrust it all to God. And so then we come to our third story, 2 Samuel chapter 24. So this is, David is coming to the end of his reign as king. This is the last chapter in 2 Samuel. Guys, I preached the whole book of 2 Samuel today. Look at that. Look what the Lord has done among his people. I didn't say preached it well. I just said I got through it. All right, we got through it. 2 Samuel 24, David is here at the end of his reign as king. And this first verse, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, what we will find before we move on in just a moment is that taking this census was an evil thing. And we might go, well, it seems like God incited. I mean, that is what the text tells us. Two things in response. I don't have near enough time to give this the justice that I want to, but I have to at least address it. The first is, when Chronicles tells this exact same story, Chronicles says that the enemy, Satan, tempts David. I think that the way that we are supposed to read this is that God, because there's so much connection between God and the heart of David, that God knows what's in David's heart, and it's as if he's turning him over to his own heart. And he's saying, David, go ahead and do what you want to do. Go ahead and do what you want to do. Why does David want to take a census? David wants to relish in what he's done for his kingdom. Look at this thing when I took over and look at it now. 
How many fighting men? Look at the expansiveness of my kingdom. And so we go to verse 2. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so I may know how many there are. Verse 3. But Joab, who is almost exclusively evil, by the way, Joab even recognizes, not a good idea. Good idea. May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Next verse. The king's words, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000 claps for David. Verse 10, and David was conscious, conscience-stricken after he counted the fighting men Some of your translations will say, and David was convicted or stricken to the heart. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Now, pause. Think about what we just saw in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David sins with Bathsheba. And almost a whole nine months go by until the baby is born. And we don't see any repentance. Certainly David is wrestling with this guilt. He knows what he's done is wrong, but at least at the moment, nobody else knows about it. Maybe just a select few people. Until the prophet Nathan comes. In this story, David doesn't need a prophet to come. He doesn't need a divine intervention. He doesn't need an angel to appear to him. David knows Because something in David's heart is in tune with God. He knows, God, I have sinned against you. I have done so much wrong here. Now let's keep going. Verse 17, when David saw the angel, so part of the the punishment was that, David, you wanted to see how many people are in your kingdom? Well, I'm going to take some of them away. So when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the king, no, I, the shepherd. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Verse 18. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arana looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face on the ground. Arana says, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arana said to David, let the Lord, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arana gives all this to the king. Arana also said, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. 
David built an altar to the Lord, next verse, there and burnt sacrifice, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel stopped. Seth, if you can come. What do we see in this last story? David wants to go out with a bang and he strokes his own ego by counting the men, the fighting men. Look at my kingdom. Look at what I've done. What is David slipping into? He's slipping into the warning that Samuel gave to the people before they had a king to begin with. If you want a king like the other nations have, it will always end up bad for you. But then David repents, and he has this moment. And he says, David, I the shepherd. Which is contrasted because Arana, the one where David comes to buy his Uh, the threshing floor, Arana calls David king seven times in five verses. The author is making a contrast here that David as king is the one who made this decision. David as king got them into this mess. But David, when he lives and governs from the heart of his shepherd, he realizes, God, don't punish the people. Punish me. The people did nothing wrong. I've done everything wrong. David the king would take all of the stuff for free. But what do we see David do? He renounces the rights that accompany his kingship. And he channels that inner boy, the shepherd David, the one that God anointed, the one in whom God saw something beautiful that was after his own heart, the one in whom God saw something like his own son, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd There are these verses from Isaiah chapter 40, 10 and 11 I want us to read. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. Now, how does it come? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He governs the gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Many of us in this place have envisioned Jesus as the king of all kings and God the father of Jesus as the king of the universe in a way that is just more power with more resource than all the other kings of the world. And God lords it over us and as long as we're serving him, the other kings of the world can't touch us. But what we see in the life of Jesus is quite the contrary. It's that Jesus is king by coming to serve. That Jesus' kingdom is not a top-down kingdom. That Jesus wants nothing to do with holding his lordship over you like a carrot. And if you do everything perfectly for him, then he'll be the good king and he'll fend off all the bad kings. That's not how this works. Jesus comes first and foremost as a shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd protects guides and guards and leads. Remember Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me beside quiet waters. Friends, the God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ, there was a glimpse of that in the heart of David. And unfortunately, because he's human and because the power and the resource of being a king made it difficult for David to stay in touch with his own heart, We see those things. We see those glimpses on the back end of grievous mistakes. The good news for you and me is we're going to make similar kinds of mistakes. 
hopefully not near to the extent that David did. Hopefully they don't touch thousands and millions of people, but you and I sin against God and sin against our brother and our sister all the time. And what God is calling you to is to his shepherd heart, and he wants to impart that back into you and say, look, the way that you're holding responsibility in the world is as a king or a governor, and I want you to hold it like a shepherd. I want your heart to be one that cares for people and breaks for people. And when you sin, I want to be able to just breathe on your heart and immediately you know. You confess your sin and you repent back to God because that's who he is. That's what we see in the life of Jesus. So stand with me and we'll prepare our hearts to come to the table today. The sovereign Lord, Isaiah 40, comes with power. But when it comes, what does it look like? It looks like one who tends his flock, who gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. This is the God that you and I serve. And this is the God to whom we come at this table this morning. The God who wants to gather you up and care for you and bind up the wounds of your broken heart and give you more and more and more of his own heart that when you leave this place, you care for people like he cares for you. This is the table not of New Life Midtown, but of the Lord. And he curates the guest list. And so we say, if you want to come and meet this God revealed in the life of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come to this table today. You can exit out the left-hand side of your rows, come and receive the elements, and go back to your seats, and we will partake together in just a moment. Come to the table. you deserve 
My prayer this week has been, Lord, just tenderize me. Lord, tenderize me. I don't want to be so calloused and dense that I need a divine intervention every time that I'm wrong. I want my heart to be in touch with yours. I know perfection is not on the table, but God, I want to be close. I want to be close to you. And I feel compelled to just say for those in the room who may not have grown up in church or if you did and you've gone away because you didn't have the image of God as a shepherd, but the image of God that you at least heard or picked up somewhere along the line was that of a taskmaster who's just waiting on you to mess up so that he can slap your wrist. Friends, I am here to tell you that is not the God I know and that's not the God revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. And there are hundreds of sermons to be preached in that space to help answer questions and all of that, but I'm here to tell you, God is shepherd and he is the shepherd who is after your life to comfort you, to carry you, to guide you, to guard you and to bring you into greener pastures. And if you want to know that God and don't yet know that God, then these Communion attendants will be up here remaining after service. And I beg you, please come and just ask them to pray with you. Ask them to pray with you. On the night he was betrayed, take the bread in your hands. Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. New Life Midtown, let us receive the body of Christ broken for you and for me. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us receive the blood of Jesus shed so that we could be forgiven our sins in a new covenant. Thanks be to God for these good gifts. Amen. Well, let us respond with the doxology.
It has been good to be together as the people of God, but now we are being sent back out into the world. Go in the peace of Christ and the power of the Spirit and be led by the good shepherd who is leading you into greener pastures. Amen. We'll see you next week.